If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a crowd podcast. There's two things that have bothered me at this level emotionally in my career. And one was in Bosnia during the Srebrenica massacre, uh, where 500 Muslim males were killed in a theater, and this bed was the other one. That's Mike Maloney, the NCIS special agent who was in charge of the forensic reconstruction in House 2. Mike is a big bear of a guy. 6'2", 6'3", gray hair, glasses. No longer the fit drill instructor he once was in the Marine Corps. Mike is also brilliant. Talking to him is like spending time with Sherlock Holmes or someone who can see the Matrix. For four months, Mike Maloney lived inside the photographs Andrew Wright had taken in House 2. His job was to make sense of them, to determine what exactly happened in that bedroom. Now, to say those pictures are shocking or disturbing or gruesome honestly isn't enough. I mean, every photograph of every murder is shocking or disturbing or gruesome. Or at least, it should be. But these photos are different. You know the saying, every picture tells a story? I think that's what makes Andrew's photographs so upsetting. It's the story they tell. Of the horror, the panic, the last desperate moments for a room full of children and their mother before someone walks in, two people actually, and guns them down. That's why those pictures haunted Mike Maloney and everyone else who's ever seen them. It's just, it's hard. You look at the bed and you look at the boy and you look at the girls and you can imagine the mother's words being, don't worry, honey, you're here with me, you're safe. But they're not safe. In a matter of 12, 15 seconds, they're dead. And it does make you question. I remember for probably three months, Uh, getting up every night, every two or three hours, and checking my kids to make sure they're safe. Uh, It's just, you you can't stop because you sit there and look at it. And you realize it doesn't matter what that mother told her kids, they weren't safe. It wasn't okay. And it wasn't gonna be okay. Did you have nightmares? Yeah, this one bothered me a great deal. I had a lot of trouble uh, with this particular, particular incident. My name is Michael Epstein. And you're listening to my podcast about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in U.S. military history. Murder in House 2. Episode 3. Blood Spatter. This is a shorter episode. You may have noticed that. More focused than the others in this podcast. It's really just two voices. Still, this episode contains a lot of information. Some of it, tough to listen to. But I want you to know as much as you can about the photographs from the back bedroom of House 2. And more importantly, how Mike Maloney interpreted them. How he decoded the forensic clues that you or I absolutely would have missed. And how those clues 
helped Mike piece together a sequence of events in that bedroom. It is, if I'm entirely honest, fascinating stuff. But it is also not for the faint of heart. I debated whether or not to edit down Mike's forensic examination for the sake of brevity, or just to make it less, I don't know, graphic. Because it gets pretty detailed, and we are talking about the murder of children. But in the end, I decided against it. I think it's important you hear the whole exchange between Mike and myself, everything in its entirety. Because if you're going to ultimately decide who's responsible for these murders, you need to know exactly what happened in that bedroom. But there's another reason, one that goes right to the heart of why I'm making this podcast. The Haditha massacre is thought of, when it's thought of at all, as a failed prosecution. There wasn't enough evidence, or the evidence that was collected showed that all the Marines, except Frank Witterich, were innocent. But that's not the truth. There was plenty of evidence, and much of it was damning. You see, I think it'd be more accurate to say that Haditha isn't so much defined by a lack of evidence as it is by a corrupt or incompetent prosecution. One of my great frustrations during the decade I lived with this case was the fact that the evidence was never made public. And by that, I don't mean that it wasn't made public to you or me. What I mean was that it was never presented in a court of law. And I guess that's the real reason I'm making this podcast. And the real reason I want you to hear the entirety of Mike Maloney's interview. This evidence needs to be heard, even if justice is no longer possible. Okay, the self-aggrandizing preamble is over, and you've been forewarned. Here we go. Can you tell me what you see forensically in the back bedroom of House 2? At first, you're overwhelmed by the position of the bodies, the age of the victims, uh, the amount of blood on the walls and the bullet defects in the walls. It's almost unimaginable at that point what happened in that bedroom. And as much as it's unimaginable, the data is also unmanageable. There's just too much. So what you do is you pick one isolated person at a time and you just examine them. You examine one shelf in the headboard and you work your way through and it took months literally took months of looking at every photograph to come up with what happened. But very early on, things become apparent. For instance, the mother's lying in the bed. She's on her back. She's been shot on the left side of her nose. Okay? So the bullet enters the left side of her nose. It comes out the right rear of her head. We can tell from the bloodstain patterns on the pillow and on the headboard that her head was in that position when the shot occurred. So in order for the bullet to strike the left side of her nose and to be on that angle, the shooter had to be at the foot of the bed. He had to be to her left. If he was to her right, the bullet couldn't have struck the left side of the nose, it would have struck the right side. So one simple run at wound dynamics, entry, exit, blood spatter. We know the body position. We're able to form a wedge a triangular-shaped area where that shooter had to be when that shot was fired. And we do that for every single shot to everyone on that bed. We do it for the boy. We do it for the girl curled up at the top of the bed with the gunshots to her head and one that might be in her ear, the graze wound across her wrist. We do it for the girl whose head is split open and whose brains have come out as a result of that. 
we go injury by injury and determine what position were they in when they were shot. And then where would the shooter have had to have been in order for the bullet to have penetrated them in that position? What we have to start doing too is we build up dynamic movement. The mother's on her back, the boy's elbow is on top of her. The mother was shot first, the boy was shot second and went on top of her. We then have the girl that's curled up against the boy's side and whose head is split open, unfortunately. She has to be shot after the boy because her brains are on the boy's buttocks and he's already down in that position when they hit. So we're able to sequence what order the people were shot in by taking one wound at a time, what came out of that wound, blood, tissue, brain, or whatever, and where did it end up? We have the girl at the edge of the bed who's partially off the bed. Her dress is trapped under the other girl. So that girl has to be in a position to trap the dress before she starts moving. She gets her legs swung off the bed, but one of her legs is trapped in position by the other girl that's down on her hands and knees, dead, between the bed and the wall. So we know that her foot came down before the other girl locked it into place. We know that the girl that's on the floor was shot, not last, because striking the wall, there's a bloodstain pattern, and that's associated with a piece of brain tissue that's lying on her buttocks. The only place that brain tissue could have come from was the girl back on the bed again. So she has to be down in that position when the girl on the bed is shot. So we're able to sequence who went down in what order. And when we're able to do that, we also see something that's very methodical. They're shot in order from the foot of the bed. This isn't a shoot here, shoot here, shoot here. They're shot from right to left, going across the bed. Mother, son, daughter, daughter, teenage daughter, and then the um, other teenage girl. So we watch that progression happen. There's a sense of purpose. Oh, there's a sense of purpose and they're well-aimed shots. We don't have a spray of bullets in the wall and in the headboard. The bullets that are being fired are striking people. They're going through them and then lodging into the bed frame and other things like that. But there's not only a sense of purpose, but we have well-aimed shots. The targets are being sighted and they're being engaged. And then the next one's being moved on to. Very methodical is the sense I get when I look at that scene. Visibility is not a question. There is no fragmentation grenade that went off in that room. We've inspected all of the photographs. There's no fragmentation grenade where it would have landed on the bed, rolled under the bed. There's a south and an easterly window. They have curtains on them that are relatively sheer. The sun's been up for an hour, an hour and a half, and there's no buildings or other things that would obstruct the sun from coming through those windows. And the shots are well aimed. People know they're shooting children? Yes. People know that they're shooting children. This whole sequence took a matter of seconds. Five children and two women killed. Mike Maloney also found no evidence of an insurgent having been in the room because there wasn't one. Maloney's blood spatter analysis, that's the technical name for it, concluded that there were two shooters in the back bedroom of House 2 firing near simultaneously. The primary shooter, the first Marine in the room, took a position at the foot of the bed and was responsible for six of the deaths. The second shooter entered the bedroom just after the firing began and took a position right inside the doorway. According to Maloney, two children were killed by this Marine. Now, if you do the math, it doesn't make sense. 
six victims were shot from the first position at the foot of the bed, two from the second position by the door. That's eight victims, but only seven people in the room. How's that possible? Well, Maloney determined that one of the victims, a five-year-old girl named Aisha, was shot by both Marines from both positions at the same time. So that was the first part of Maloney's investigation, one that took him months to complete. His next task was to try and assign a shooter, a specific Marine, to each position. Turns out that wasn't nearly as difficult, because one Marine had already confessed. That's Lance Corporal Stephen Tatum testifying at Frank Wooderich's court martial. When you get into that room, could you describe for the members what you see and what you do in, in the room that you went? Uh, immediately when I entered the room, um, I could see that there was no individuals in the room. There was no, no specific threat to me. Uh, right about at that same time, uh, in the room that Staff Sergeant Woodard had entered, uh, I hear uh, M16 fire. Why do you say it's M16 fire as opposed to some other weapon? Uh, I've been around M16 fire Stephen Tatum was a member of the fire team that cleared houses one and two. Just after the investigation began, Tatum gave the NCIS what Mike Maloney determined was a statement against self-interest, or what you or I would call a confession. Tatum told the NCIS he was clearing a room in house two when he heard firing in the back bedroom. He immediately assumed that one of his fellow Marines was engaged with an insurgent. He rushed into the room, firing his weapon, exactly as he had been trained to do. Before he realized it, Tatum had shot and killed a child. And which Marine did Tatum say he went to support? The Marine who stood at the foot of the bed? The Marine Mike Maloney had determined, sighted targets, and fired methodically from right to left? According to Stephen Tatum, that Marine was his squad leader, Frank Wooderich. What do you do when you hear that? Uh, immediately uh, exit the room, and uh, I observe the uh, Marine uh, starting to move his way down this way and, and firing in this direction. Did you enter the room that is in the southeast corner of the uh, propellant 144 that we're referring to as house two? Yes, sir. Just to be clear, the lead prosecutor and Tatum are talking about the back bedroom in house two. And could you indicate how many feet into the room from you was Sergeant Woodridge? Uh, a little bit further than you, maybe less than five, six feet. Can you give the members an approximation of how many total, round, total rounds you fired? Uh, more than five, less than 50. Now, I want to put Tatum's testimony aside for just a moment. We'll get back to it because I want to establish something else, something incredibly important to this case because it is fundamental to Marine culture, command responsibility. Frank Wooderich was always going to be held responsible for what happened in House 2, independent of Stephen Tatum's testimony. In fact, Frank Wooderich was always going to be held responsible for everything that happened in Haditha, 
by simple virtue of the fact that he was in charge. He was the ranking NCO, the non-commissioned officer at the scene. This was Frank's squad. The Marine Corps places a premium on command responsibility, and for good reason. You hold those in command, of any rank, responsible for the actions of the Marines who serve under them. Without that accountability, there is nothing. There's chaos. It was clear from the beginning that Frank Wooderich was going to be a key player. Frank was the squad leader. And by his own admission, he was at each location that day. But Frank was also adamant, as you'll hear in a bit, that he killed no one in House 2, that there was no way he'd ever shoot women and children. That's why Tatum's confession was so important for the government. It placed Frank Ruderich as the primary shooter in House 2. It's obvious that there's a problem with Frank Ruderich. Whatever eventually will be decided happened criminally in that bedroom, it would certainly appear that he's criminally culpable for that, that he is one of the shooters in that back bedroom where those five children and the two women were killed. Why do you say that? Well, because he was placed there by the statement, by Tatum. Years before he would testify in court, Stephen Tatum gave this statement to the NCIS. While in House 2, Staff Sergeant Wooderich fired shots into a room. This again made me think the house was hostile. I went to assist Staff Sergeant Wooderich and saw the children were in the room kneeling down. I don't remember the exact number, but only that it was a lot. My training told me that they were hostile due to Staff Sergeant Wooderich firing at them and the other events I mentioned leading up to this. I am trained to shoot two shots to the chest and two shots to the head, and I followed my training. I regret that innocent children were killed that day, but I also know I did what I had to do. Tatum places him in there. It's a statement against self-interest because Tatum places himself in the room at the same time. And statements against self-interest tend to be um, more accurate. So Tatum is making a statement against self-interest. He's pulling Wooderich in there. I had no moral, no ethical, no other challenge putting Frank Wooderich's name on that shooting position in that back bedroom. Special Agent Mike Maloney's forensic reconstruction detailed the sequencing of the deaths in the back bedroom of House 2. It concluded that there were at least two Marines who fired in the room near simultaneously. One Marine, Stephen Tatum, fired just inside the doorway. The other, sighting targets at the foot of the bed, was Frank Wooderich. Are you worried that you can't remember because something bad happened that you don't want to remember? I just asked myself the same question. Next episode, we finally meet the 25-year-old Marine at the center of the Haditha investigation. A Marine whose only defense is that he couldn't remember what happened. Frank Wooderich. Am I choosing not to remember? Because it just blows my mind that everything is just so jumbled up that I cannot remember what happened. And therefore, I cannot, I can't even defend myself if I don't know what the fuck happened. If you want more Murder in-house 2, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll be posting videos of what you've just heard as well as photographs and copies of original investigative documents. Just search for Murder in House 2. This is a Crowd Network podcast in association with Buccaneer Media and the Dakota Group. The podcast was produced by Steve Jones 
and edited by Ed Eniot, with additional editing by Ed Barteski Jr. and R.A. Fetty. Executive producers for Crowd Network are Mike Carr and Mike Pearls, and for Buccaneer Media, Tony Wood and Richard Tulk Hart. Original music by Joel Goodman, with additional tracks from BMG Production Music. Finally, if you'd like another podcast recommendation, check out a Crowd Network original called Death of a Rockstar. Each episode is about the lives of Whitney Houston, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, Prince, and sadly, many more. Their stories are beautifully told in around 30 minutes each. Just search for Death of a Rockstar in your podcast app. There'll be a new episode of Murder in House 2 out Mondays. I'm Michael Epstein. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. This is Michael, and I don't know about you, but sometimes life gets so busy I don't have the time to cook, but I still want delicious, healthy, gourmet meals. Enter Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals are always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat the flexitarian and protein-rich meals, and with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was quick and amazing. And if you want more than meals, there are over 60 add-ons, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day. And if you're like me and you're always looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to Factor Meals dot com slash murderhouse50 and use code murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's murderhouse50 at factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi! 
Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.